and welcome to episode 52 of the 1099 for the week of July 25th, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is Giant Bomb senior editor Alex Navarro. Alex, how are you doing today? I am doing all right. Uh, it is uh, scalding hot out here oh, uh, in New York today, so uh, being indoors and being on a podcast is... Uh, I. I, I Thank you for, for making See, keeping me yeah, inside you, today. Yeah, you're welcome. Me too. So it's I live in Jacksonville, and right now it's like 98 out and storming, which is an awful – it's kind of like you're swimming through the air. The humidity is so bad right now. So being inside on a weekend, it's, it's the greatest thing. Yeah, no uh, no rain here, but it is, uh, it, is, it is bright out. It is sunny. It is humid. It is unpleasant all around. Yeah, I used to live right around the Pittsburgh area and had family in New York. And I just remember there were some summer days where it's like, I can't do this. This is awful. It's just always super hot. And then when it's wintertime, you start complaining about that, too. It's really cyclical. Yes, it is. The, the complaints, you know, they're predictable, but they're they're necessary for New York life. Did you get a chance to do any vacationing after E3? I know um, a lot of people uh, in West Coast Giant Bomb were able to get out. Did you go right back to work afterward, or did you get a chance to go somewhere? Uh, we did go right back to work afterward, but uh, I took the first week of July off, and it was uh, not a go-somewhere vacation. It was a lay-on-the-damn-couch uh, while my girlfriend was out of town and no one else was around kind of vacation. So I just sat around and I played video games and kind of, uh, you know, sank into the couch for a few days. That's kind of the best vacation. There's something special about when, like, instead of actually planning something, be like, I'm going to Hawaii or something crazy like that. It's like, no, I'm going to not work in sit on this couch or go out and do something fun close and just kind of decompress because i mean i had watched a lot of those live shows and it had to be just stressful on e3 to set them up make sure everything was going off without a hitch and there had to be a lot of you know reshuffling of everything and making sure okay please make this be okay because i know patrick had done patrick klepik had done a lot of the kind of organizing in the past was this your first or second year kind of making sure everything was going smoothly for the after shows this was my second year uh being in charge of that stuff um and the thing i will say is that yes there is definitely some stress around that stuff uh there is there is a lot of negotiation to make sure that people uh are able to come at times that work for us and for them and all that uh but we have kind of started to move a little bit more in the direction of actually planning these things out as opposed to just telling people to show up and then kind of <laughs> shuffling people into the mix, uh, kind of all higgledy-piggledy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was kind of the way we used to do it back in the day was just like we'd get our people to come by. We'd figure out what hour blocks or you know two-hour blocks they could come by for, and then we would just kind of throw them on camera uh, whenever it made sense. Uh, but as we have kind of uh, built out the guest list and as we have kind of uh reached out beyond our usual like friend groups we have found that it is kind of necessary to uh put a little more uh, a little more structure to how we book these things uh and so this year was the first year i think we had pretty much everyone set for an exact time to show up and be on camera uh, and that actually made things a little bit easier, shockingly enough. <laughs> Did you? Could you ever imagine how big this thing became? Because it's it's now kind of in my mind one of my favorite things about E3. Because oh, thank you. It, it, it's just a, it's a cool idea, and you're getting better and better at having like suddenly there are three people on a couch that are all really unique and interesting, and they play well together, and you get conversations that you wouldn't get otherwise, and it gives kind of people this breather, because, you know, I've been at E3, you have like this, you're always rushing around, you're always kind of, if you're a developer, you're trying to, you know, sell your demo, sell your game, and uh, you're you have that state of mind, but when they get on that couch, it's kind of a 
you get to talk through everything and talk about the show and talk about the industry. I mean, was that kind of the goal from the start or did it evolve over time? Well, so I wasn't there in the very early days of E3 when they when they were first doing that stuff. Because I was at Harmonics at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, what I do remember from you know, like obviously when I when I came on and even from just talking to Ryan, uh, who did a lot of the the kind of wrangling and booking for that stuff back in the day, uh, his philosophy was always very much like we just want this to be interesting conversation. You know, like we yeah. just want to try and get people together. We don't want to make this we don't want to make this like a like an E3 stage show. You know, like we want this to be, uh, you know, the, the, the podcast, the, the giant bomb cast was always predicated on this notion of we just want to be able to shoot the shit and have like a natural sounding conversation. And mm-hmm. we want to kind of transfer that to these kind of E3 presentations because E3 is a stressful thing. It always has been and always will be. And, you know, I think that people it, the, the impression I've always gotten from developers and, and personalities and folks that, that we bring on for these things is that they are grateful for the opportunity to actually sit down and talk about stuff without like being on the hook for doing like the hardcore marketing presentations yeah. and interviews and that kind of stuff. So, you know, you get people talking about the games they're working on and talking about, you know, the show, but then, you know, you also get them on there talking about E3s of the past and, you know, like what the show means to them and, you know, kind of state of the industry stuff. And also, you know, just talking some straight up bullshit. And I think that's, you know, I, I think it's it sounds really easy on paper, but like making those combinations work and getting people in and kind of having all that stuff come together the way it does. It's not that there's a hard formula for it, but it like it, it takes it does take some effort. Yeah. And I mean, it's tough to especially like in Jeff's shoes, you sometimes you're you're having those people on the couch that maybe he's never really talked to before. Suddenly it's this new developer who it's like you might have heard of him, but you never had this face to face interaction. You need to figure out quickly, like kind of gauge uh what they like to talk about what they're interested in um i mean even with this podcast very often i'll i mean like right now like we never talked until right now uh and you have that moment where you're like all right how is this gonna go you never really know so for him to just have random people on sometimes a lot of times it is like you know people he knows well you have the the dave langs of the world you have the john vignacchi's of the world but then there's i mean i worked for uh, tan gentleman and when i was talking to you about getting rich smith on there like he i don't think he'd ever talked to him before so you kind of have to go on the fly to see like how is this going to go? And what's, what are these personalities going to do on this couch? What if this guy doesn't really get along with her or she doesn't get along with him? And uh, thankfully, somehow you've kind of gotten away with not any nothing really crazy happening. It all kind of just goes forward without a hitch most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the worst thing we occasionally run into is that, you know, some people do get drowned out of the conversation. And that's something yeah. that I'm always trying to be mindful of when I'm booking this stuff and hoping, you know, that everyone gets a good chance to talk and, you know, kind of say their piece and do what they want to do. But you know, I mean, this whole thing was very much built on this notion of let's just get a bunch of people together and hang out and talk and, you know, this sort of party atmosphere without it actually being a party. Uh, you know, I mean, back in the day, we were doing this shit at like a random house that Ryan found. You know, we were <laughs> I remember like, that we were in this fucking flop house uh, owned by co- or you know, at least rented by college kids. Uh but at the same time, you know, we were doing this kind of show there. You know, we were getting like, you know, Genova Chen on and Dan Riker talking about Dayton stories. You know, we were uh, we were getting, uh, you know, the, my favorite one that was maybe probably the most uncomfortable uh, was Jonathan Blow and uh, two of the Microsoft folks, uh, oh, he and uh, Steptoe, back when they were still working there. And. That was not built with the intention of there being any sort of uh, hard questions or animosity or anything going on there. But uh, Jonathan Blow had some pointed things to say about working with Microsoft, and that became interesting. Uh, 
but beyond that, you know, it's like for the most part, it, it's very much. I feel like we very rarely run into situations where there was any sort of friction. It's always been just like, even if you don't know each other, or even if you're not really familiar with each other, like you're all working in the same industry or at least around the same industry. So there's always something to talk about. Uh, and you mentioned harmonics earlier. And I mean, you had been, you were at GameSpot, you were at harmonics and then you were at screened for a stint, weren't you? Yeah, I was, uh, just under two years. I worked on that site. Yeah. So do you finally feel kind of set, and fully comfortable being a senior editor at Giant Bomb. I mean, it's it's hard, especially in this business, too, to find full time work that you're you really want to stick with for a long time. A lot of people go from uh, writing at a GameSpot and IGN and being like, okay, now I'm gonna do PR for this company, or now I'm gonna do community management for this. Uh, do you feel like fully comfortable in your role right now? And did you always, in a certain sense, after uh, Jeff and Ryan had left GameSpot, did you always kind of feel like you would hook back up with them? Absolutely not. Um, I never had that inclination. I never really knew where things were going to go past that. Um, I have always sort of lived my life in this very like, well, let's just see where this goes kind of uh, yeah. mentality. And, you know, that has kneecapped me in certain ways, but in others, it has allowed me to kind of float into positions that have uh, turned out pretty well. Um, you know, the harmonics thing was something that I I wanted to do because I, I was already getting burned out on the games writing thing before even uh, uh, Jeff's uh, firing at GameSpot. And I wanted to try something else, you know, and I was super into Rock Band and what Harmonix was doing at that point, And it seemed worthwhile to pursue that. And, you know, for a couple of years there, it definitely was. Uh, if the screened opportunity had not come along, uh, it's tough to say whether I would have ever gotten out of there or not. Um and, you know, it, moving back to Giant Bomb, that just kind of, honestly, that was more a situation of circumstance than anything else. It was, uh, I really wanted to move back to New York. Uh, my girlfriend was here, and I kind of just, you know, wanted to build a life out here with her. Yeah. And uh, in the end, you know, the, the original idea was going to be that I was going to kind of split time between Screen and Giant Bomb. But then the sale happened, and uh, the end of, the situation ended up being it was like, well, they're not really going to keep a staff going at Screened, so we would like to keep you on at Giant Bomb. So we're just gonna we're gonna have you come along with us uh, when we do this sale. And I said, okay, and that was kind of how that ended up working out. Uh, you mentioned that you were kind of burnt out with games writing at yes. a point, uh, and I mean right now a lot of what Giant Bomb does, of course, there are still you know, new stories and reviews and stuff like that. But um, the, I think the majority of what you're doing is quick looks, live streams, uh, and a lot of video work. You also have you know Giant Beast casts and everything like that. Is there now a part of you at all that misses writing as and as many reviews? Because I, I've always enjoyed your reviews. I think you're really great at games criticism. It's something that. Uh, I, I talk very often on this podcast. Uh, I, I think I've had like Nick Capazzoli on here about three times, and we either compliment or bitch about games criticism overall and how it could be better and things we want to see. We both wrote at uh, GameSpot for a while as freelancers under Kevin Van Ord, who was great to have around and just got a really a real passion for it. So, is there a part of you that misses uh, writing reviews as much, or do you kind of feel just as uh, comfortable and satisfied doing the quick looks and live streams? It's hard to say exactly because. I do enjoy writing reviews when I have something to say. I think I what I don't miss is the grind of having to churn out words about something that I don't really have any significant feelings about. Yes. Um, you know, it's like the mediocre reviews were always the hardest ones to write. Uh, the bad games write themselves. Mm -hmm. The good games are a little tougher because it, it balancing, you know, 
balancing praise without getting overly effusive about it is it can be a little bit of a challenge uh, at times. But, you know, those are still a lot easier to write than the ones that you really have no meaningful opinion of. It's just like, yeah, this is this exists. It's fine. Whatever. Um, so that aspect of it, I absolutely do not miss. Um, that said, you know, part of the reason we don't write as many reviews these days uh, is simply because we're a small team, you know, uh, and we have like the as you said, the core of our business is very much video content and podcast content. That is the stuff that is, uh, you know, both the money content and just kind of what people really seem to gravitate towards when it comes to our stuff. Um, that doesn't mean I don't want to write criticism anymore. And I, I still will take those opportunities where they pop up, but you know, I, I miss aspects of it, but I don't feel like I've completely given it up either. So I, I don't feel like, uh, like I am lacking for it at this point. Do you read a lot of games criticism these days? Because, I mean, you've been writing reviews for a long time. Again, I, I think you and Jeff have probably written thousands of reviews at this point after doing GameSpot, just because it was, again, a, a grind in that way. Uh, and I feel like I've gotten kind of mixed opinions from people who have been in the industry for a while. Um, who, when I had when I talked to Greg Kasavin, he had kind of said that he doesn't feel like... He feel like there's always kind of been the discussion about, you know, some ge- reviews read a little bit like a product description. Some are more like a feature experiential. He doesn't think it change, it's changed that much. And other people I've talked to feel like it's really grown a lot of ways. There are a lot more, there's more diversity in reviews and what we're talking about. Do you kind of feel like we're at a healthy point in games criticism? Or do you think it's kind of similar to what it was back when you started at GameSpot? I mean, I would say that tonally uh, it's a healthy place. Because there is, like you said, there is that diversity of both approach and opinion out there. Uh, far more so, I think, than there was when I was working at GameSpot. Um you know, GameSpot and to uh, other sites, I think maybe were a little less militant about this than we were. But like, the formula was very much the approach that we took for that stuff. Like, it, we had a review score formula, and we were always kind of working within some of the, this this very specific format for writing reviews. That uh, I, I don't want to say was like you know a, a a hard rule for how we wrote reviews, but it was just kind of the way it was done. Everything kind of read sort of like. You know, like CNET writing a refrigerator review. Like, it was wasn't very much there like the a, reviewers tilt back then too? Yeah, that there was, was the reviewers the, tilt. That was yeah. the here's where the reviewers opinion kind of slides things one way <laughs> or the other, which wasn't the worst idea in the world. But yeah. I mean, you know, in retrospect, the idea that there was a mathematical formula that could have ever like you know accurately reviewed a game was uh, I don't know. I'm just going to call it a little bit of hubris. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, you know. That was a, it was a different time for what games criticism was and what people kind of demanded out of that stuff. Um, nowadays, you see a lot more uh, willingness to kind of branch out beyond some of those very basic, like, you know, graphics, gameplay, sound kind of uh, recaps. It's almost like a five paragraph essay style where it's like, all right, here's my first, here's kind of my summary. Now I'm going to lay out my certain points that always goes story, graphics, sound, boom, conclusion, and here's a score. It's, it's exactly. a lot more. Uh, and I think Austin Walker, who was working at Giant Bomb until recently, did a really good job of that, where he would take, I think it was the Battlefield Hardline review, where he goes into a much bigger kind of cultural aspect of that, instead of just saying, the shooting's good, but the story's not great, 7 out of 10. Yeah, yeah, Austin, you know, even before he uh, he came to work for Giant Bomb, like, he was one of the first, like, kind of up-and-coming writers that I've, I feel like I really noticed, uh, just kind of purely on the strength of how good his work was. Um you know, the stuff he was writing for Paste and and, and elsewhere, like, I, I immediately recognized, like, this is someone with a very commanding critical voice uh, that 
understands this medium and is able to contextualize it in a way that very few other critics are are doing these days. Um, And I think you're starting to see more of that. You're starting to see more writers. This is something that I talked about uh, in other interviews before. It's like a lot of people who wrote about games uh, back when I was first getting started were people that kind of fell into this line of work. Whereas nowadays, I feel like you're seeing a lot more people that... uh, specifically really want to write about games. Like this was kind of the direction they wanted to go in. And oh, I yeah. think that is an incredibly beneficial thing for the, for, you know, just kind of the critical medium these days. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it is different now because when I was in high school, I remember that was my goal was like, I want to write about video games. When I was in college, I was going uh, for journalism for the fact that I wanted to write about games. So I think there is more of that. Uh, and it's hard now because, there's there's a lot of random sites, you know, there's sites closing down, and it feels like I was in uh, two separate interviews for full-time work at major sites, and the first questions on both of those were about my on-camera experience, and then the writing was like way toward the end of the interview, and that was kind of a, huh, like, I don't know if the demand is there as much, and I mean, speaking more about on-camera stuff, how long did it take for you to feel comfortable being on camera and being on podcast, because I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but... Again, I've watched Giant Bomb. I've been, been a premium member for just about the start. Uh, you're one of the people I could point to and say, Alex has gotten a lot better and like really good at being on camera and being able to carry on podcasts and do stuff like that. It's something that I've definitely noticed you've gotten a lot better at. So at what point did you feel like, okay, I got this? Uh, I still don't, is the, <laughs> is the answer to that question, is that I, I, I still... Uh, I don't hem and haw about it the way I used to. I don't. Uh, I don't have the nervous ticks I think that I used to. But uh, I still don't feel 100% comfortable on camera or on a microphone. Uh, that is something that I managed to brute force my way into feeling okay about. Uh, and I think that I only really started to get that way in the last couple of years. Yeah. Um. You know. The, the screen stuff uh, actually helped a lot being like forcing myself to write scripts and and build videos uh, for a medium that wasn't like my immediate wheelhouse uh, forced me to work on my presentation to work on, you know, clear, like making what I was saying clear and understandable. Uh, and, you know, the couple of years I was out here in New York by myself uh, doing the show with Patrick in the morning like that. That kind of helped my conversational on-camera kind of thing, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but it's really been since Vinny was out here and we started making stuff together and then Austin joined the team uh, that I feel like I kind of hit a stride. Yeah. And, you know, I, the thing is, in reality, I'm never going to be 100% comfortable with this stuff because it's just not what comes naturally to me and I don't think it ever will. But now I do feel like I can do it without going through a whole bunch of flop sweats before I get up and do it. <laughs> and yeah, you and Vinny work really well together and it was also great when Austin was there, but Vinny makes everything easier. Like, he that seems is... like someone who could make anyone feel comfortable no matter how uncomfortable they are. He, that is a hundred percent correct. He, um, I don't know what it is. It's just, he just has this way about him where he just puts people at ease. Um, and it's, I haven't met a lot of other people like him in terms of like capability of doing that. Like it, I, I never feel like I'm working when I yeah. do a podcast with him or <laughs> with him. It just feels like we're just shooting the shit. And I think that helps a lot. How difficult is it to find someone who blends with your personalities? And again, giant bomb, it's the focus is the personalities. You have to have the right people. And like you, I would have a feeling if you have someone who doesn't fit, you'd know right away. I mean, now that 
Austin is gone, you're going to have to start doing that search again to have that third person in New York. So can it be daunting, like, going through those interviews? Because you can't, of course, you know, if they can write, that's important. If they're comfortable on camera, that's important. But they also have to kind of fit into what you're trying to do. Yeah, they do. Um, but, I, you know, I don't want to make that out to be like some sort of impossible task. Yeah. Uh, you know, like we're just we're just people, you know, mm-hmm. and and yes, fighting that chemistry is absolutely vital. I think the bigger thing for us is that we've had to hire very few times uh, over the course of the site. Um, you know, a, a couple of people have left the site in the years since I've been there. Uh, and, you know, the number of actual hires we've done was like I can count them on less than two hands. Yeah. And so. You know, it's less that I think it's impo- like it's hard to find people that would have that chemistry. It's that we're just not very well versed in having to go through hiring processes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it is a challenge. And it is, I think it is the number one most vital aspect of finding someone for this site is someone that can that can do the on camera and the podcasting work and just sort of like and can vibe with us. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, it, it's. I don't think that's an impossible thing to find. Uh, I think it just, it, you know, it takes us a little more time than it would be if we were just hiring for a, okay, here's your your first out of college staff writer type of position. Yeah, it's very different. And this is an odd question, but it's one I've wondered for a while. It, In a sense, do you ever feel any pressure to stay at Giant Bomb because of the dynamic that's been formed at Giant Bomb? Like if, let's say, suddenly... Brad Shoemaker decides he doesn't want to be a giant bomb anymore. He got another offer somewhere to do something like that fundamentally changes what the bomb cast is, what the quick look dynamic is. It changes so much about what giant bomb is. Is there and again, it's an odd question, but is there any kind of pressure that like we want to keep this together? I mean, I think there's a desire to keep it together, yeah. but uh, I wouldn't say there's a pressure. Like, I would never begrudge anyone on our team for, you know, finding a different path at some point. Like, that's just the way things go. Like, I've been through enough uh, people leaving jobs that I've been at over the years and uh, new people coming on that I just, you know, I, I'm accustomed to those kinds of changes. They're a little more uh, seismic with our site because we are a small team. So every single piece that moves is a significant piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't say I feel any like pressure to stay on. Um, I, I would, I, I would hope that none of us do feel that because, you know, life will always take you in weird, unexpected directions. And, uh, I don't think anyone should feel beholden to stay in a place forever, just out of like some desire to keep, you know, an existing chemistry or an existing, uh, setup, you know, going. I think that, there will be changes. People will leave. People will come through over the years. And, you know, I mean, who's the hell's to say we're even a website in a few years with the way games media is going these days? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't necessarily, like, want to hold people to stuff like that, considering how, uh, frankly, just uh, unsettled a lot of things are in this industry these days. That's a really good point. And it kind of brings me to, let's say you start a giant bomb today. Would it be Would it be a YouTube channel? Would it be a... Like like a Twitch channel with a YouTube channel. I mean, look at kind of funny when they left. They did Patreon, uh, mm-hmm. and they got a really you know large amount of money because so many people enjoy their content. And they want to see them do well. They want to see more from them. I mean, I, I it's hard to say. Like I would be shocked if you guys if it started today if it would be a website because it's, it's just a different landscape. Like you said, do you think like like you said in a couple of years do you think you might not be a website anymore and it's just like a YouTube channel supported by Patreon? I, I wish I knew, but um, in reality, like, I have no real perception of, like, where things are headed in that regard for us. Uh, what I will say is that uh, 
if we did start the site this today, I doubt it would be uh, in the format that it is now. Uh, you know, the wiki thing was a very cool thing that we did uh, when when Jeff and Ryan and and all those guys, you know, first founded the site with the whiskey team. Um, but you know, would those resources be available to us now? Would we be able to build out that website and do it the way we have it right now, uh, given the current climate? I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't. I, I feel like the likelihood is that, yeah, we probably would have fallen into the YouTube slash Patreon model at some point. You know, I think the idea of doing the subscriber thing would probably still exist, but we'd probably be doing it a different way. Uh, and I doubt we would be, you know, owned by CBS if we were doing yeah. it that right that. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of what our website is now is kind of a legacy of, of when it was first founded. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we want to get rid of that stuff or change it uh, drastically, but I don't know that we could find Giant Bomb the exact way it is now uh, in 2016 as it was in, in, I guess, 2008. Yeah, and I assume you all, you know, not constantly thinking about this kind of stuff, but at least looking ahead to the future because you look at Jeff and uh again the quick looks the 15 minutes of gameplay and now it's like an hours of gameplay with the commentary over it that was very forward thinking that's something that's really popular now that giant bomb did a lot of when it wasn't as popular and the subscriber model in a sense is kind of like the kickstarter patreon funding model so it has to be something that you know you at least if you i doubt you stress over it but there have to be some meetings where you're thinking about you know what do we do if this happens and what could come next I think that's applying a level of foresight to, you know, some of our operations that maybe doesn't exist. I don't know. I, yes, we do have conversations about this stuff. And I mean, I think all anyone who is in this industry and is paying any kind of attention would have to notice that uh, things are changing and they are changing rapidly. And the where the, the eyeballs are going these days is definitely not to the traditional sources. It's um, like I remember when we were at GameSpot, the thing everyone was kind of wringing their hands about was the blog sites. Yeah. Uh you know, Joystick and Kotaku and Destructoid and other similar sites were kind of popping up. And, you know, they were kind of eating a lot of the the sort of big box uh, game coverage sites lunch um, because they were a lot more nimble. They were just working on posts. They didn't have to worry about, you know, like big video production things. They didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, a lot of the production costs that uh, th that the IGNs and the GameSpots of the world had to deal with. Um so, you know, increased competition was kind of uh, freaking some people out. Uh, now, though, you know, Joystick's gone. Uh, Gawker is in the place that it's in right now, which yeah. is sort of unsettled. Uh, Destructoid's still plugging along. But, you know, these days, uh, it's the YouTube stuff. It's the, it's the personality-based content that people seem to be really gravitating towards. Which is interesting, but, you know, also it's, it's a challenge because what the YouTube personalities are doing is pretty different from what traditional media has typically done when it comes to games coverage. Like I would say that a lot of what not, not wholly, but a, what a lot of YouTube personalities do is promotion. Mm -hmm. Like they're there to be promoters and they're there to, uh, to give their following entertainment, uh, not so much to apply, you know, uh, full on independent criticism to games the way that, uh, that, that, you know, traditional media had typically done. So you're seeing this kind of blurring these days of the lines between like, well, yeah, PewDiePie is not a reviewer, but people are still following, you know, kind of his every opinion and his every word. So 
doesn't that still kind of make him a critic, even if he doesn't intend to be one? It's so strange. It's so it weird because a lot of that stuff is just hyper positive. It's it's all like, oh, this game's amazing. This game is great. And uh, I think it was like that Rooster Teeth thing where like talking about Jeff's review of Fallout 4 being too low. And there's a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, I was one who I, th- I think my reviews probably skewed a little bit lower on the end at GameSpot. And I would just catch so much shit from that. And part of that, I think, was like, I think a lot of these people who are reading this review or have been visiting a lot of these YouTube channels and they're already kind of conditioned to think that like there's this already this positive response and if you at all deviate from that it's not that they disagree with your opinion they don't even look at it as an opinion they look at it as this person is wrong because of this you get a lot of those comments saying your review of this game has to be wrong because you gave it a five and these other sites gave it eight and you're like oh it's just not how it works it's not how you should look at this and i mean there was always some of that even back in the day like you know gamespot had its system wars forum for a long time and i think still does actually (laughs) uh and that thing you know that thing was born one out of uh, a desire to kind of uh quarantine some of the you know system bias stuff that would throp up elsewhere in the forums but it was also kind of i i feel like it was sort of a nascent point for a lot of that like this person is wrong because they don't say the thing that i want them to hear kind of uh response to criticism uh and now you're seeing that stuff spill over into a lot of other uh mediums you know you're seeing uh i i these days i feel like i'm seeing a ton of film critics uh discuss and sort of uh, bemoan the, the the tone of response to a lot of their reviews these days, yeah. especially uh, as the as the film industry has kind of moved into uh, more geek focused stuff, you know, with the comic movies and the, the you know, the resurgence of Star Wars and most recently Ghostbusters and all that. Uh, the response to the critics has been uh, similar to what video game critics have kind of been enduring for a while. It's this notion of you know, well, you are objectively wrong because you didn't give it the score that the user review average on Metacritic or whatever is. And it's like and, that fan culture when you start delving into comics and into stuff like that where people take sides and they take strong sides and they might identify as a comic book fan or a gamer. You start getting that issue where, yeah, when you say something bad about something they like, they almost take that as this personal offense. Yeah, and I, you know, I understand it's no fun to hear a bunch of people bag on something that you really like. Yeah. Like that's, I, I totally get that. But a certain amount of perspective, I think, has to be applied to that, and just say like, yeah, these critics didn't like this thing that you like, so you know, maybe you'll have to do a little more work to defend it when you're having conversations about it. That's that's where it begins and ends. That's it. That's all it means to you is that you will have to say, well, here's why I liked this. Yeah, and. If that was the tone of the conversation, that would be fine. But that's not generally what the tone of the conversation has been. It has been this very vitriolic and reactionary thing. And, you know, I think the tone of the video game conversation has has definitely followed suit. It has gotten more and more intense in recent years and not necessarily for the right reasons. And I don't know. It's it's it all feels a little messy these days. It, it does, and I think I enjoy reading reviews that kind of go against my opinion. I used to get the same kind of that feeling in your gut when you really like something. You're like, oh, this person's wrong. But now for me, it gives me perspective. Of course, it can also build your argument against why you like something if someone doesn't like it. But sometimes it gives me an angle where I'm like, I never thought of it that way. Even if I love Uncharted 4, I can read someone's review that gave it like a 5 and get something out of that. And maybe under, Maybe it'll show me 
you know, maybe why I like it more or maybe show me like, oh, I never thought about it this way. And that's kind of that's another way I use reviews. I very much use reviews. Uh, Jason Concepcion, who used to write for Grantland, now writes for The Ringer. I talked to him on this podcast and uh, he wrote a kind of experiential feature review ish thing of Metal Gear Solid five. And I saved that for after I beat the game because I got more out of it because I could see like, here's what he got out of this segment and here's kind of his response to it. And I think that's an interesting use for reviews is going back to something. Even if I review a game, I might go to a writer I really like, uh, like Austin Walker, see what he thought of it. And it makes me have a different perspective, which I think is critical. Yeah. And you know, that's not to say that every perspective is, you know, I would say a hundred percent, uh, worth paying attention to. Sometimes you read reviews and you're just like, well, this person clearly did not grasp what was going on here or just has such a wildly different perspective from me that I'm just not going to get a whole bunch out of this. Mm. Um, but in general, I agree. I, in general, it's, it's not really important to me that I agree with, you know, every critic that, that looks at the same thing that I do. And, you know, like Tom Chick uh, is a writer that's been around for a very long time uh, and, you know, has sort of been labeled a contrarian over the years because he tends to take, uh, you know, to, to generally have a much more negative perception of a lot of big budget games than, you know, the typical critical consensus tends to be. Yeah. Uh, but I've always found Tom's stuff really interesting because even though I disagree with him a lot, uh, his he he articulates his stuff in such a way that I always understand where he's coming from. And I always appreciate reading that stuff because it's always very well thought out. Um, it's not just contrarian for being contrarian's sake. It's like there's you, you can see what what he's getting at. You can see where where it's coming from. And that's something that I think is incredibly vital. You know, it's one thing to just be like, well, we disagree. But it's another thing to be like, well, now I understand why we disagree. Yeah, absolutely. That I hate reading this stuff that sounds like someone started playing a popular game with the intent of having a different opinion. Like, that yeah. doesn't interest me. But yeah, when the people who afterward are like, I now understand why there's a different view here. I now understand why you don't like this. And that's interesting. Uh, before, we were talking a bit about the changing nature of the industry and how everything's kind of heading toward YouTube and streaming. But here comes Vice's new kind of video game venture with Austin Walker. And I just had John Davison on two days ago who's doing Glixel with Rolling Stone. Right. So there's this kind of strange other direction is taking too with the culture writing and even zam zam is a site that now i feel like it had an even greater focus uh on bringing in a lot of good freelancers a lot of interesting people there's these three sites which while they're not actually linked they kind of are linked in my head as uh even after seeing you know game pro and joystick and other sites like that you know struggle and eventually close there's still this other direction where people are like people want to read long-form, interesting game coverage. Do you see this as a trend or maybe just three isolated incidents? Uh, I wouldn't say it's three isolated incidents, but I would be reluctant to call it a trend just yet. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, Glixel is a Rolling Stone venture. Uh, Vice is vertical. You know, they've had a, a gaming section for a while, but this is their their what seems like their commitment to trying to make that a much bigger aspect of their uh, regular day-to-day coverage. Um, you know, like, this feels like mainstream media trying to dip their toes a little bit more into games and trying to make that a part of their portfolio, um, which is not something that hasn't been done before, obviously. Like, you know, there's been games coverage in, in Newsweek and Entertainment Weekly and a variety of other places, but that was always very kind of segregated. It was always like, hey, we have one writer who handles this stuff, and then once every three or four issues, we'll do some reviews, and that's kind of it. 
Um, you know, this feels like a little bit more of a commitment. Uh, and, you know, in the case of Rolling Stone, I have to imagine that this is probably them trying to get a little bit younger. Uh, you know, that's a magazine that has skewed very uh, kind of older white male for a long time. And I imagine yeah. that they're trying to, to, to bring that overall demographic down a little bit in terms of number. Um, and that's probably not a bad idea for, uh, you know, for a publication if, if that's the direction they want to go in. I don't know, you know, like, I don't know if other publications are going to follow suit. I mean, you know, Simon Parker's at the New York, or Parkins at the New Yorker now, uh, full time, I think. Uh, New York Times seems like they're kind of, you know, they're still dabbling here and there. They, they don't seem like they're fully committed to it, but they might at some point. Who knows? Um, it, I, I think the trend will reveal itself if more mainstream outlets start to, 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 to mess around with this and start to, you know, bring in some hires uh beyond just like the freelancers that have kind of made up that coverage for a long time yeah it's it's a really cool thing to see because of course i want you know more jobs to be out there for Absolutely. people it's hard to get a job and it, it, i want to see when i talked to john it was really uh it made me feel really good about where glixel's going where he, he points at places like grantland and the, the way they talk about uh sports they kind of want to do that with what the uh glixel's doing about games and having these long interviews with uh, developers and profiles about the people and the actual culture surrounding games. And, uh, and you know, I know Austin has to, I, I trust what Austin does. I know he could do really great work there. It's, there was definitely, when I first heard about both things, it was that worry of, uh Oh, are these people just thinking games are hot right now? Let's make a site about it. Cause that's not exactly the best way to handle it. But, uh, if this is a trend, it would be exciting because it can, there was, there were certain times, when I was freelancing more regularly where uh, I was kind of bummed out because it felt like people weren't really looking for long form, uh, interesting games content. They were looking for the influencers and they were looking for that kind of stuff. They're looking to argue about uh, the numbers at the end of a review instead of the process of making the game or the people behind the game and learning about that kind of stuff. So if this is a new direction, it would be great. I know uh, Glixel is also the majority of the site is going to be freelancers. There's going to be full-time people, but they're almost getting freelancers on as if they are uh, w like regulars. They're getting regular freelancers to do different columns and stuff for them. So yeah, that is the hope that it goes that direction. Yeah. But I, I hope it doesn't become a thing where they realize, oh, people don't want to read writing anymore. Let's just stick with YouTube. Well, I mean, that's that's the concern, right? And, you know, I think it's it's a weird time. And, you know, I, I, I'm with you in that I, I very much am in favor of anything that helps bring more, you know, steady employment to people who do this line of work, because there there is definitely a dearth of that. Um, the concern I have is more that I, and it has less to do with video games and more to do with just media in general. And I think it's the same hand wringing that a lot of other people in media have been having these days, which is to say that. You know, it's great that the ringers coming together like that's, you know, Ed, seeing Grantland close was, uh, you know, a real disappointing yeah, thing for that me. Sucked. Um, and I, I hope that the ringer is able to sort of carry that mantle forward. But, you know, while that's going on, you've got some sites saying, like, we're just laying off our entire editorial staff and we're just going to do sponsored content now. You've got other ones saying, like, hey, we're really hard into investigating this bot aggregation news style um, you know, we're just gonna, we're basically gonna replace our newsroom with automation. And 
that's the kind of stuff that gives me a lot of pause when I start to hear about like, you know, new websites founding and things like that. Like the worry I have, and maybe it's unfounded. I don't know. But the worry I have is that the, this trend, uh, or at least this, this push toward, you know, kind of trying to bring video games in under these, these regular mainstream outlet banners is more to do with like a, we need to figure out how to get younger people to look at these websites before we have to go in that direction. Yeah. Versus Almost, like, uh, like a Hail Mary compared to like really going for it before things look bad. Yeah. If not a Hail Mary, then at least going for it on fourth down, you know, yeah. like it's, it's definitely, it does feel a little bit uh, like I want, I don't want to be overly cynical about it. And I definitely want, I am hopeful that this stuff bears out and that this, these, these verticals, these sites are, are successful for a good long time. Um, it's just, you see the way things are going in media, in the media industry in general, like, like globally. And it's this is not a fun time to work in media. Like there are fun places to work still some, but uh, it, it is definitely it, it's the weirdest and most unsettled it's felt uh, since I've been doing this. Yeah, it, it, right when I got out of college, it was very much uh, it, it was weird because I was looking around the landscape and it was I don't know how much of this is still going to be around by the time like am I going to get a job and then get laid off in a year or two because it's just it's it's unsettled is a good word for it where you just you don't know what's going to happen because the entire industry I did job shadowing in high school uh, way back when and I was at uh, two different actually three different print uh, newspapers that were near me and every single time I interviewed them it was for like a senior project thing all of them said don't do this like don't get into this if you're going to do this like find another way to write, go online, like get out of here. And these are people who, you know, were still doing the job and knew kind of saw the writing on the wall. And it, that part sucks because I know you have to get this a lot too. I, I very often get people emailing or sending me direct messages or on something on Twitter saying like, Hey, how do you get the job you have? Or how do I write for GameSpot? Or how do I write for someone? Uh, and it's really difficult for me to say with confidence, like, all right, go, go to a smaller site, write a whole bunch, get experience, and then start throwing out pitches and eventually get full-time work because I can't really guarantee that. It's not one of those yeah. industries where it's like, if you work hard, you'll get it. Like maybe, but I've, you know, I, I've hit walls. I know a lot of people who deserve jobs who have hit those same walls and it's, that part sucks. And I do hope again, more jobs and hopefully these are stable jobs at places that have their kind of head and hearts in the right place. Yeah, I mean, the thing I always say is that uh, luck and circumstance are, are responsible for at least 70% of my career. Uh, you know, I knew the right people. I ed entered at the right time. I, I found myself into the right situations. You know, I've done the work. I, I think the fact that I've lasted here is because I've been able to do the work and I've been able to build an audience and I've been able to, uh, you know, integrate myself with, with what the folks at Giant Bomb have been doing. Um but at the same time, like, I can't stand here and pretend that, like, you know, just working hard and just really wanting it is what got me here. Uh, it's it's always going to be a weird combination of determination and also just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. You mentioned your audience. And I think Giant Bomb has one of the most interesting, most positive audiences and communities that I've ever been around. Uh Again, when uh, Rich Smith, who works at the studio I work at, was on your stream, I was in that chat, you know, kind of saying like, well, here goes. You never know what's going to happen in a live chat. And everyone was just super nice, super great to talk to. There was no craziness. You know, I, they've not to, I'm not calling out IGN or GameSpot or anything like that. But when he went on like those live streams, you just get a lot of comments. They're like, oh, and I, you know, I've been a part of the Giant Bomb community for a while. And it's just been 
really great to be a part of. So, I mean, what do you think makes your community, the giant bomb community, so positive and so easy to deal with compared to what else is out there? Uh, I wish I could say for certain exactly one thing or another that has made it this way, but I kind of can't. It's a combination of things. One, you know, I mean, look, we we go at moderation in a pretty heavy way. Uh, You know, we kind of try to instill this notion of like, please don't be a jerk on our on our website. Um, You know, there's a certain there's obviously a certain amount of um, room for interpretation as to what that means. But the idea that like the thing we never want to foster is a negative environment for people. And like we don't want our audience to to feel like they have carte blanche to just, you know, say whatever mean thing comes into their head on the website. Uh, There are other places. There are plenty of other places on the Internet for you to go say whatever mean thing comes into your head. Um, So when you're on our site, please just, you know, just try to be respectful. You know, you can disagree. You can say, I don't agree with anything this person said. I don't like the game they're making. I don't like the thing you're doing. But, you know, be constructive about it. That's kind of the been the the overriding mentality that we've had over the years. Um, I mean, I'd also like to think that, you know, hopefully just through the work that we do and through the, you know, kind of just the tone that we try to establish in the content that we make, that we would ideally attract people who are totally cool with that idea. Um, you know, it's not like we don't get shitheads that come around our site from time to time, but, uh, I, I'd like to think that we are discouraging of that in a way that is not like overly heavy handed. Yeah, and the forum stuff is usually when it's when people are disagreeing, they're not yelling at each other or starting by saying slurs. It's it's usually pretty calm. Like I disagree with this. Here's why. It's yeah. It's, I mean, it's so much better in that way. None of us like that internet. You know, yeah. like I I go on Twitch reasonably often to watch streams. Like I've been watching the Evo stuff, and I will say this: like for, for the first time this year, I've been watching Evo, and the chat has seemed pretty reasonable for oh, the wow. most part. Uh, not. There's still stuff in there that's bad. But usually it's uh, all bad. Yeah, usually it's nonstop bad. And I feel like in the time I have been spending looking at the the Twitch chat, like I was watching some of the Tekken finals earlier today, it seemed like people, you know, a lot of people yelling wrecked and a lot of people yelling fraud, but like no, I wasn't seeing any racial slurs or other horrible things kind of being launched out of there. And maybe that'll change once the, you know, the bigger finals start. I don't know. Um but that was at least encouraging. But in general, yes. I mean, I, I look at Twitch chat. I've seen what YouTube chat looks like in general. Oh, YouTube chat's the worst. There's just, you know, YouTube's attitude always seems to be, you know, we're just not going to bother because it's not in our our best interest to do so. Um, and I think when you are that big, like, how do you moderate that stuff? How do you keep that stuff clean? I, I don't know. So, you know, in our little pocket of the Internet that we occupy and that we you know, we're, we use to build our stuff, we'd like to at least try and make that space a little more pleasant if we can. Yeah, no, I, again, you've been doing a great job with it. And uh, you mean you guys have expanded East. You're now looking for a third person. Uh, you know, Giant Bomb West is doing great with, you know, Jason A. Stryker being on there and somehow Dan Reichert. Uh, so, I mean, what's what's next for Giant Bomb? Like, what's... Of course, like, you know, a lot of that is Jeff and CBS and any discussion they're having. But what's kind of the uh, are you looking to expand more? Are you happy with where you are? What's kind of the future of Giant Bomb? I mean, you know, without getting into things that I probably shouldn't talk about for yep. various nondisclosure reasons. Um, what I will say is that, you know, I think the the attitude of all of us is that we'd love to be a bigger team, but there are limits to what we can do as far as that goes in terms of budget and in terms of, you know, kind of what CBS is willing to 
you know, is kind of willing to go in on because they, they also have GameSpot, you know, which is a, a much bigger uh, site than we are and is, is something that does require a lot more resources than, than we do to kind of just operate at the level that we do. Um, so there, there's, you know, there's attention and focus and, and budget stuff that we always are going to have run up against with. But, you know, I mean, yeah, we are going to we're going to find someone else for New York. Um, and, you know, I think going forward, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on sort of like this is the worst phrase. And I'm sorry to say it. Our, <laughs> what our, our core competencies are oh, uh, for your hashtag and, brand. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're going to kind of focus on that for a bit and just kind of tr- make sure that the stuff that we do the best and the stuff that people like the best uh, is being done to the level that it can be. Um, and that, you know, we're that we are maximizing what it is people like about Giant Bomb uh, to the degree that, you know, we can hopefully down the road grow a little bit more beyond uh, the, the small but I, I would say small but effective team that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for spending the time talking with me today. It, it's, it's funny because when I was uh, graduating high school and getting into college, you could ask anyone I was around when they said, what do you want to do when you graduate? I said, ideally, my perfect job would be to work at Giant Bomb. Like Giant Bomb has always been this place just that I've you know really enjoyed to read, really enjoyed to watch. Uh, and it's really cool talking to you. I, you're, you've been doing great work, and I'm really excited to kind of see that third person, see how that dynamic works uh, at Giant Bomb. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully you tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.